Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Jim Marty here reporting from very warm mid-90s Fort Collins, Colorado today. I just uh, was touring a, a CBD extraction lab up here in Fort Collins. Larry, how are you doing out there in Chicagoland? Jim, I'm doing just fine today. Uh, everything is great in Chicago. We have beautiful weather. Um, everything is going just fine here. Uh, still waiting for the state to give us uh, the names of the winners of the dispensaries. And uh, surprisingly, I had a client uh, over the weekend who got a deficiency notice, which is only troubling because it means it's at least another 10 days before the state can make an announcement. So, um, you know, we're all uh, starting to wonder here. Clients calling want to know when we're going to have answers, but we're working on it. Um, without beating around the bush, Jim, we've got a really special show today and uh, let's make the most of it. Um, we've had a number of people on this show from time to time. Uh, people in the industry, people uh, affiliated with the Grateful Dead, and even some people who kind of uh, have a foot in both camps. But today we have a guest uh, who really is special and may be uh, uh, truly unique in this regard with respect to both the command he has of what's going on in the cannabis industry, uh, as well as his, uh, and I know this firsthand, unbridled love uh, for the Grateful Dead. He has started uh, one of the most successful cannabis law firms in the country, if not the world, um, he has uh, international scope, both in his hemp practice and a very strong based marijuana practice here in the United States. And, uh, I think is really looked at, uh, by a number of people as, uh, as one of the leading people in the industry. And I'm, uh, would like to, uh, introduce then, uh, my colleague in the practice of law and a gentleman who is honest as any Denver man can be, uh, Bob Hoban. Bob, thank you. And welcome to the show today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, guys. Uh, it's been long overdue. I've been listening to what you guys have uh, put together uh, over time, and uh, it's always entertaining and uh, really happy to be here. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. One of the questions, Bob, that I wanted to ask you right away is I know you get on shows and, and everybody wants to know when's marijuana going legal? What's the what's the latest with CBD? And our, 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 our excuse me, our listeners are always all interested in that. But you kind of provide us today with a kind of a unique opportunity. Um, and that is one of the things that's uh, always attracted me to your law firm and, and that got me interested with you in the first place was kind of the seamless way. Uh, that you folded together both uh, the practice of law for cannabis uh, as well as your love for the Grateful Dead. And it really got me thinking. Um, you've been so successful with it. Uh, in your opinion, how does the Grateful Dead resonate with today's business leaders? You've really made it a point in your practice to regularly reference the Grateful Dead lyrics and other things like that. And while it's a lot of fun, I, I sense that there's a real purpose behind it. And I was curious as to what kind of brought you down that road and, and what results you've seen. No, it's, it's a great point. I mean, ultimately, the Grateful Dead lyrics mean so much more to Grateful Dead fans, uh, I think, than other lyrics from other bands. Because the catalog, the library is so darn diverse when you go from a song like Shakedown Street to Terrapin Station, what the heck <laughs> is that, you know? I mean, how did that come out of the same band? When you think about those things, it talks about innovation, but it's also more about the experience. It's about the live shows. It's about the collaboration with people that really is the undercurrent. It's the common denominator between folks that are Grateful Dead fans and really focus on the lyrics. As it relates to, to business, you know, I recognized 
many years ago that this space was getting hot, <laughs> that the cannabis industry was something that was going to be extremely uh, in need of legal counsel and, and consultants and, and advisors going forward because it was something that was sprung from night into the sun. And all of a sudden, here we are years later, and there's there's a lot besides just the sage wisdom of the lyrics to look at as it translates to business. I mean, think about it. The Grateful Dead, they mastered improvisation. If you're not an improviser as a business owner, uh, especially a small or medium-sized business owner, then you don't have a chance. The Grateful Dead demonstrate how you can live by your values, right? Um, how did they succeed by doing good? Uh, as a law firm, you certainly have to have that integrity. You have to have those values. And the industry values are something that people in the industry ultimately um, follow and make sure that you are who you say you are. The Grateful Dead also pioneered customer service in a certain respect, or at least customer value. I mean, think about it. What exemplifies being loyal to their customers, their listeners, their fans, more than making all of the content free? Um, getting to provide value to that customer, providing ticket services that 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 circumvented, you know, Ticketmaster sure. and, and 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 the like over the years. So there's a lot of things you can learn from the Grateful Dead as it relates to business. Those are just a handful of those things. And I'm curious in your uh, in your practice, have you had people respond specifically to that and 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 take note of what you're doing? I get notes all the time. I get, I, and, and by the way, I, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but <laughs> there's a little game we play when, whenever I have a talk or whenever we're on a conference call. And it depends if there's some other deadhead fans, you try to work lyrics into everything. And it's a game where you're awarded points and the points really don't count and they don't matter. And there's no object, objectivity around what points, but the bigger the stage, <laughs> the higher profile, the audience um, the more points you get for, for working in tactfully and appropriately and subtly grateful deadlines. And people find them. And, and people that read what we put out as a law firm and that listen to our podcast, The Hope in Minute, um, they listen to it and they say, well, you know, that was a great way to work that line in. Or, you know, you talk about uh, your work as advocacy and you talk about um, you work out in the field and you say something like, I spent a little time on the mountain. I spent a little time on the hill, meaning Capitol Hill. Like people like those things and it attracts them to you because it, it shows that there are layers to the person behind the business person, especially as lawyers, Larry, as lawyers, we get put in a box all too often. And if you look at people that use Grateful Dead lyrics that have high levels of success, it's not limited to, to lawyers and it's not certainly limited to the Grateful Dead, but think of the great Bill Walton. You know, as he narrates a basketball game and how he works lyrics into that, uh, it, it's pretty profound. It puts a smile on your face and it makes you appreciate that person's contribution much more. I agree. I do the same thing from time to time. Uh, one of my favorites when I'm negotiating a business deal is uh, one man gathers what another man spills. <laughs> sure. I was just going to say that's a great line. And it's a great line to talk about the different uses of hemp. We always find that. What about the stock that you leave in the field after you take the, the flowers and the CBD off of it? One man's going to gather that because there's business to be made. That's true. That's very true. And back to um, Robert Hunter's lyrics, as I try to explain to not deadheads, say it's like Shakespeare. It's poetry. 100%. 
Well, I think that's true. And, and you know, we've talked about this, Jim, before. And, and Bob, you and I have had this conversation as well. But, you know, the, 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 the thing about that is that Robert Hunter's lyrics could stand alone. Uh, you know, with or without the music, they stand alone as wonderful poetry. The fact that Garcia put and, uh, you know, Weir put such beautiful music to it as well, uh, you know, really just takes it to another level. But, you know, my, my favorite line is, what would Fish be like if Trey Anastasio had Robert Hunter writing lyrics for him? That's right. I, I love Fish. Great band. But, you know, the lyrics to Ripple versus, say, uh, Susie Greenberg, no comparison. That's 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 very very true, that's very true. So Bob, I'm curious in your um, uh, you know, do you find that you're constantly bumping into other deadheads along the way? So you you find deadheads in in the in the strangest of places, perhaps. Um, if you look at it right. Yeah, exactly. The 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 uh, the, the things that that occur to me is when I weave in a uh, a line, for example. Uh, we were talking uh, to a, a, a group uh, of investors recently, and you know the, the idea of plant ice, you plant ice, you're going to harvest wind. That came out, uh, and it came out naturally. And it, you know that's an important thing about using these lines. It's got to come up subtly and in context and be appropriate. It can't be pre-planned. Yes. So when you say that, and then somebody comes up to you afterwards and go, "Hey, I heard you're a big Grateful Dead fan." I said, "Well, didn't you happen to notice?" Oh, you know, I thought that's what you were getting at, but I wasn't sure. It just sounded like such an artful way to make your point. And that's another reason, Larry, that this makes uh, that that this works so well. You're not forcing something in there. You're using it. It's an artful way of saying something you otherwise would have said, and it's inspired, written by the Grateful Dead. And by the way, I must note, you talk about Hunter. Let's not leave John Perry Barlow out there. Amen. I was just up in Wyoming last week. Uh, and drove through Cora, Wyoming, where he was from, and uh, you know, uh, reminds me of this this great story Bob Weir tells about when he wrote "Saint of Circumstance" and these thunderstorms that came across the the Wyoming high plains, and saw one of those right at that point in time. As Weir would say, it was a giant purple rogue thunderstorm that just came rolling over the mountains, dropping light, lightning and thunder everywhere. So uh, uh, it was it was pretty awesome. That's funny. You know, what, what's interesting to me here, and, and the three of us, I think, really kind of are, are perfect examples. You know, my father was always really concerned about me running off to all these Grateful Dead shows, right? Oh, who are these people you're hanging out with? And who are these crazy deadheads? And who are these? And yet, if you stop and you look at the number of successful business people in this world who are, in fact, deadheads, I think it breaks pretty well for the people that find themselves uh, hooked into the Grateful Dead. Well, yes. And, and let me give you an example of that in real time. I was down in Mexico uh, for the Dead and Company playing in the sand just in January. Um, and, and I guess that was the end of January, early February. Um, and uh, this was right before you know COVID really started to have any impact across the United States. And uh, it's the second year in a row I'd gone to the playing in the sand. And while that was, it's a great event. One thing you notice is the level. And, and, and by the way, it's not inexpensive to go to playing in the sand. They price it accordingly. They know their audience, right? It does attract a level of uh, professionals who have gotten to a certain point in their life and that can afford that. Uh, and we saw that. It, you see that firsthand in that makeup of that crowd. Business leaders from all over the world. You've got people that you'd recognize their faces from the front of Forbes magazine, just walking by in a tie dye uh, with a beer in their hand. 
that's the kind of crowd that the deadheads have, have evolved uh, into. Not to suggest that it's all like that or that that means some are better than others because that's not the case at all. But it does have a disproportionately large group of highly successful professionals that follow the dead. Jim, have you found, have you found the same thing, Jim? To fill in a little story along those lines, um, my wife and I were lucky enough to uh, – we saw some Red Rock shows in August, September of 1983, and then we followed them down to Santa Fe for a couple of shows in uh, September of 1983. And six months later, we started our own CPA firm. So big inspiration to me. Sure. Sure. It's a, it's a great way to go sometimes. You know, it, it, for me, I've always just liked the fact that when I'm sitting in my office, I have a Grateful Dead poster on the wall. Yeah, me too. And uh, in a lot of ways, they represent freedom. They really do. They really do. It, it, it's, 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 a, it's a great thing. And Bob, along those lines, uh, something we like to do with our, with our guests who come on the show who uh, have a little bit of a Grateful Dead background is when was the first time you saw the Grateful Dead? You know, when you sent me that note the other day, it brought me back uh, October 26th. 1985 uh, in Tampa, Florida. I was about, I was just a little over 10 years old, and uh, my uncle had brought me to a show. Um, I just remembered the song Throwing Stones uh, uh, in that set list, and just, you know, what a powerful um, anthem that was, perhaps. And, uh, uh, you know, you talk about, you know, liberty and you talk about uh, freedom. The Grateful Dead certainly stands for that, but it also stands for social activism in so many other ways. And then you went into the second set of that show and you got a really, really long and deep women are smarter, uh, which who knew that wasn't Ico Ico, by the way. Uh, you know, it was it was pretty remarkable. Right, exactly. Uh, it used to drive me crazy. Many, many years ago. <laughs> Wow, so ten years old, boy! I think you take the record for the uh, for the youngest first show that we've had on the show so far. Very impressive. Um, do you have a recollection of it? I mean, do you really recall enjoying it at the time as a ten year old? Um, well, I, I, like I said, Throwing Stones was the first one. That might have been the seventh or eighth song of the show, if I remember correctly. At the beginning of it, I was just awed by what was going on around me and the people. Uh, and then that was the song that sort of got me to go. Oh wow, I get it, or at least I, I feel something now. And then, you know, from that point forward, it was more about the music at, the, at that show, if I remember. But you know, even going back, I know you guys were talking about the Fairly Well shows the other day. You know, the the same thing I recognize as a ten year old is the same thing I recognize at the Fairly Well shows. When you look around that venue, whatever it might be, there were ten year olds, there were seventy eight year olds, there was everywhere in between. There were people in wheelchairs, wheelchairs. There were men. There were women. There were people of all shapes, sizes, and colors. And that is ultimately what the Grateful Dead shows were all about. Um, and that's what the thing back when I was 10 years old that impressed me the most. I was standing next to my uncle, who was an old guy at the time, probably, you know, 40 plus or minus, right? An old guy, quote unquote. Um, and uh, looking around and seeing guys that were probably 60 at the time and going, these are even older guys, right? And then looking around and now we're the old guys. Uh, and there's uh, another younger generation below us. Uh, it's a pretty darn cool thing to be a part of, uh, and it really represents the timeless element of the music. The music stands for something much more than just the notes on a piece of paper uh, and the words. Like you said, Jim, it's it's poetry. It means something for people. It's shaped people's lives so deeply. It certainly shaped mine. So, Bob, um what did you do before you started Hoban Law and what inspired you? You talked a little bit at the top of the show uh, to devote a uh, law firm 
to the cannabis industry? That's a great question. Um, so before I, I, I went to law school, obviously, I, before I, I went to law school, I worked for the U.S. government on the East Coast in Manhattan, graduating from Rutgers University. Uh, I had just a, a, a hankering to get out to the West, to the Rocky Mountains. Um, I did a lot of mountain biking. I did a lot of backpacking and climbing in the West, and I decided I wanted to move out there. So I decided to uh, apply to law school in Montana and Wyoming to get as far away from New Jersey and the East Coast as I could. Um, and so I went to, uh, to law school in Wyoming, ultimately uh, started to, to, to recognize that uh, I probably would like to live in the front range in Denver rather than in Wyoming. And uh, as that evolved, uh, different opportunities came along. I worked for a couple of judges. I worked for a federal court judge. I worked for a state court judge. Uh, worked for a, a spinoff of a large firm in Denver that was called Davis, Graham & Stubbs. Uh, and then uh, began to do commercial litigation at a pretty high level, uh, began to do a lot of property rights litigation. And um, I decided to start my own law firm in 2008. Incidentally, and the firm at that time was called Hoban and Fiola. Incidentally, um, that was around the time my mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, uh, a couple years into it, in fact. She died in, in, in July of 2008. Um, and that's how I began to consider cannabis as a viable practice area. I never wanted to be a criminal defense attorney. I've never practiced criminal law a day in my life. I always wanted to be someone that made things happen that was on the negotiation side, although I did litigate a lot of commercial matters, you know, large dollar uh, disputes between large companies. Now, as things evolved, I started to help my mom understand with her pancreatic cancer what were viable legal, importantly, legal options for using cannabis if she'd even try it, because she would never smoke anything. Uh, and that led me to find these caregiver networks online here in Colorado under our legal medical marijuana system. But there weren't dispensaries at the time. So these folks, I began to, you know, sometimes you'd call them and they'd say, hey, man, I got the best stuff in town. And you'd say, duly noted. And then the next person you'd say, I'm looking for something for my mother. And they'd say, well, come by. I have an oil or a cracker or something like that that she could try. Uh, and so we did those things as well. But that led me to say, well, I'm an attorney. How can I help you establish this uh, commercially? And one thing led to another. We won a case on December 30th, 2009, first time in U.S. history that a court told a local municipality that it could not shut down a marijuana business because it was a constitutional right in Colorado to be a caregiver, which contained commercial rights to cultivate and distribute medical marijuana. So the rest is history. That case went down. My face was on CNN all over the news. And for the next four to six months, uh, we were chock full of, of, of new clients wanting to navigate this space, both in Colorado and around the country. And, uh, and here we are today. Very good, Bob. In fact, I, my relationship with your law firm started when you were hoping in Fiola. Oh, Jim, yeah. We, I mean, we go back a, a long time. If you think about some of these seminars in, in back rooms and in small venues with some of the earlier uh, marijuana operators across the city of Denver and across the state of Colorado, um, it's interesting how far we've come. Uh, you know, this is overplayed, but it has been a, a long, strange trip for sure. <laughs> you got that in there. Yes, sir. Uh, I think you and I might have won a case or two where you hired me as an expert. Yes, sir. I remember that specifically, uh, at least one of them. And uh, I remember the uh, the look on the other lawyer's face when you testified in arbitration and completely sunk their case. I forget specifically what the issue was right now, but uh, but uh, I recall that vividly. And, and you did you were excellent on the stand, and the client was very pleased. 
which ultimately is is the goal. Um, but you know, one of the reasons that you're successful, and one of the reasons that we're all successful, the folks on the phone is because some folks look for answers, others look for fights. Sometimes as a lawyer, you have to fight. But if you're always looking for answers, if you're always looking to solve the problem with answers, uh, which is, I think, a common bond between the, the three of us, uh, then you're going to succeed it no matter what you do. <laughs> yeah, well, as they say, uh, that path is for your steps alone. Bob, you um, earlier you mentioned uh, in passing uh, the Hoban Minute, which I know is your podcast. Uh, you want to give our uh, listeners a 30-second update on what happens on the Hoban Minute? Yeah, I'd lo- love to. Thank you for that. The Hoban Minute is, uh, is, is hosted by Eric Singular, uh, who's a, he's a, a, a young man that's just dynamic and, and helps, uh, helps us steer uh, topics and interviews with some of the, the leaders around the world in this space. Um, and uh, it's, it's, you know, it, I wouldn't say it's a serious uh, show, but it, it, certainly the topics we address are, are timely. We had an entire two-week uh, session that led to two months of sessions all about COVID and cannabis uh, with people checking in from all over the world. Uh, and it's gotten a lot of attention. So uh, we're, we're very excited about that. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to show what our lawyers do and what our clients do and really put a perspective on the global cannabis industry because that's really, uh, really interesting um, just to see how this thing's evolved and how the eyes of the world are on us right now and as this industry grows. I mean, every single day we're all doing something professionally that either hasn't been done before or has been done very few times because this industry was all underground uh, until relatively recently. So. That's something we should all be be proud of. Hey, I have one more question as we get near the end here. With all the social unrest going on, do you think it's a, a springboard for legalized cannabis at the federal level? Well, I think there's several things that lead to that. Uh, number one is the, the pandemic. Um, if you think about medical marijuana, it made some of its greatest public policy advances during the AIDS epidemic in the United States from a policy perspective. So it's got a track record as a as a industry of moving forward with regulations when it can assert itself. And certainly here with a public health impact, we've seen that the federal government has assembled a team to look at cannabinoids as a way to mitigate or prevent the protein hook uh, that's attached to the COVID, the coronavirus from attaching to the human body. Um, looking at the fact that cannabis is an essential business in so many jurisdictions around the U.S., but also around the world, looking at the the history of the Great Depression and how alcohol legalization prohibition ended as a result of, 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 of looking at it as an economic opportunity and a social justice opportunity coming out of the Great Depression. Uh, and looking at what's happening in Latin America right this second, where we have nationalized healthcare systems actively asserting themselves and saying, we want to integrate medicinal cannabis. And then the politicians are following them up and saying, we want to look at cannabis as an economic driver. So all of those things lead to, I think, fundamental change as it relates to public policy around cannabis. And I think that the the racial injustice that led to the the prohibition of marijuana Uh, as being highlighted by the racial injustices that we see in the protest subject matter today, uh, those things are are dovetail. If if, if the cannabis community can band together, come up with a cohesive plan, and these are all discussions that are underway and we're part of those discussions, then we believe that we can assert ourselves as an industry, promote racial uh, harmony, promote uh, racial uh, uh, progress in terms of social impact, and also look at the legalization of cannabis, which again was made illegal due to reasons 
based and rooted in racial injustice and racism from the beginning. So what a greater symbol uh, that we've achieved the social changes that we're hoping to achieve through these protests and through the unrest in America right now by showing that cannabis legality and prohibition has been ended at the federal level. Now, there's an election in November. I don't know if you guys knew that, <laughs> but there's an election in November, and it's it's basically I don't want to say it uh, because I don't think I don't think this sits well with everybody. But I think we have to be honest with ourselves. It's a coin toss. Who's going to win this election in November? And Joe Biden has not been necessarily a friend to the cannabis industry as a thing. So we have to stay very much in tune and push uh, the agenda from the Democrat administration or potential administration as to what they're going to do with cannabis. And, you know, your guess is as good as mine with a potential second term of a Trump administration would do. But uh, let's uh, let's see what we can do uh, to look at look after the industry um, as it relates to those policy topics. Well, I think that is a very good way to end things today. Larry, do you have anything else? Yeah, I just wanted to ask Bob one last question as, as we talk about all of this. And, and, you know, you told us your story, Bob. Sitting here today, are are you amazed where this cannabis industry has come from 2008 when you were first, you know, beginning to pay attention to it? Did you have any reason to ever believe that that cannabis would grow to the to the point that it's grown to today? The thought of having a regulated dispensary system in Colorado at that time was the most exciting thing I could possibly imagine from a policy and legal standpoint. And, you know, remember, I, I also taught at the University of Denver, cannabis policy from 2011 to 2016. So being able to teach cannabis policy courses with a straight face and being able to look at a dispensary system, that was the most exciting thing that I could ever possibly imagine. And then CBD and the cannabinoids from industrial hemp happened at the federal level under uh, these strange political times. And now it's a global industry. I, I could never have imagined that those things would have occurred and that those things would have, uh, you know, afforded me an opportunity to work with clients and to, you know, just have some fun um, working in this industry, advancing pretty serious issues. Um, but one thing I just want to mark as it relates to today, because I just read this article a couple of hours ago, but the Nassau Coliseum, by the way, gentlemen, the Nassau Coliseum looks like it's being closed down. It's oh. in debt. A uh, billionaire owner of the the the, the Barclays Center uh, and the teams, uh, Prokhorov, he's basically said he's going to close it. Now, there is a debt scenario, so it could come back. But let's focus on the Grateful Dead for just a second. There was 40-some-odd shows at the Nassau Coliseum. And Larry, when you pinged me the other day and said, think about what your favorite shows were, um, I go back to these Nassau Coliseum shows from the early 80s. Because yep. it was Bobby Rockstar. It was Fast. It was Minglewood, it was Ico Ico, sure. it was West LA Fadeaway being developed, and Cassidy, by the way, in the 1984 uh, show, which is my daughter's name. Mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> I love those Nassau Coliseum shows from the early 80s, fast, right to the point, um, and uh, just exciting. Uh, but we might not see the Nassau Coliseum anymore, even though Dead & Company's played there fairly recently. Well, that's you're right, and that's too bad, because the other day my son called me, and he said he was participating in some online thing where you had to identify a different song every day, and the, the, the theme was, uh, the other day, a song from a band that you wish you had seen, and of course for him, he wished he had seen The Grateful Dead, and he wanted to do Eyes of the World, and besides the fact that I love that my kid knew right away to go to Eyes of the World without me prompting him, he calls me up and he says, Dad, I, I need a good version of Eyes of the World. I'm like, 
Nassau Coliseum, Branford Marsalis on that alto sax. That's it. That's what you want to listen to. And you're right. Every time I think of the Nassau Coliseum, forget about the New York Islanders. I just think of tremendous dead shows. Tremendous dead shows. Yes. Well, uh, well, that's that's a that that's a that's a good thing, and and that also means. That you're raising your children right, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's, I have to tell you, Bob, Jim and I have had this conversation because his kids are the same way. You know, there's not a single album in my father's record collection that I would ever listen to. And he never had any interest in listening to what I listened to. And now my kids can't get enough of the Grateful Dead all of a sudden. And, and they love the fact that all this music I made them listen to for all these years, all of a sudden they say, wow, this is really good. We really like it a lot. And for me, the fact that I can share this kind of music and experience with my kids is what makes it most fun of all. Well, I think we've all raised our kids the right way. I've always taught them that there ain't no time to hate. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Very true. True that. Absolutely. Um, Bob, this has been great. Uh, we just can't thank you enough for uh, for taking the time to be on the show today. Uh, for our listeners out there, um, if you want to listen to the Hoban Minute, uh, you can get a link to it by going to hoban.law, which is the firm's uh, website and there's all sorts of good information there about the firm and all the lawyers but uh, you can certainly get a link to Bob's uh, podcast I would strongly uh, encourage people who have an interest in the cannabis industry and want to be up to speed with what's going on at the moment that's a great place to learn about it and you can count the number of dead references you hear so Bob thank you so much for coming on our show today that was my pleasure guys thanks for having me um, and uh, I'm excited to uh, to listen and uh, to keep listening to you guys as you debate these topics. And uh, I love uh, getting outside of the Grateful Dead a little bit as well when you talk about uh, Fish and some other bands. So keep uh, keep the good stuff coming, gentlemen. We will indeed. Uh, well, again, thank you very much. And this is Jim Marty signing off from uh, sunny and warm Fort Collins, Colorado. And uh, this is Larry Mishkin saying goodbye. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to our guest, Bob Hoban from the Hoban Law Group. And everyone have a good week. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.